Hey, Chris. Hey, John. How are you doing today? I am excited. I'm uh, happy to be here. Uh, we get to talk about uh, uh, the season finale of Better Call Saul, so uh, that's going to be awesome. And also, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about uh, uh, the uh, pilot for Laverne and Shirley, because, you know, we've been uh, comparing other spinoffs uh, to Better Call Saul this this year, and, and I think this one might really be in the run for actually being up there with Better Call Saul as one of the best spinoffs ever. So I'm um, I'm looking forward to this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to rain on your parade, but as excited as I am as I, as I was to talk about Laverne and Shirley, mm. do you mind listening to this recording and then and then we'll talk about today's show? Okay. Um. Okay. Now, as you know, I record all my phone calls. You do. You know, for security reasons. Um. And uh, last night, okay, at about midnight, I got a pretty weird one. Hello. Hello, John. Who is this? You really have to ask? Well, yeah, you're you're altering your voice. <laughs> Very clever boy. No, I suppose you wouldn't know my voice, would you? But perhaps you would know my list. Your list? Yes, my list of the most important spin-offs ever. Most important spin-offs? The list I found on Reddit? That was you? Yes, it is I. Oh. Mount- Mountain underscore do 69? Underscore do, yeah. Why are you calling? Wait a second. Like you got a call you from Mountain underscore do 69, the guy that we used his list? Yes, the guy whose list we used at the beginning of the season that I found on Reddit oh. that we just decided was kind of a crappy list. Right. I guess he listens to the show. So he actually was offended when we said all that stuff about his list being bad. Oh, uh, crazy. There's more, though. There's more. Okay. Why are you calling me? Like you don't know. I really don't. Oh, how the tables have turned. Whereas before I was held prisoner, listening to your podcast as you exploited my work and then dismissed it, mocking me all along. Now it is you, under my command, awaiting instructions. Wait, you listen to the podcast? Yes. Hmm. Okay, so this is a fan thing. Look, I get it. You listen to a podcast and you feel like you know the people. I go through that too. Midnight is just not an appropriate time to call me. Trust me. I'm not a fan. But you listen. Religiously. So you're a fan. Haven't you heard of hate watching something? This is what I do. Except it's hate listening. I hate you. Oh. A lot. Okay, I'm done with this. Oh, but I don't think you are, John. Well, you're wrong. Bye. Oh, my little fuzzy boy. Tee hee hee. With tiny sock feet and a pudding belly. Where'd you hear that song? I've I'll stop the tape for a second, just to provide a little context here. That song that he's singing, uh-huh. it's the song that I sing to my kitten when I feed him in the morning. And nobody has ever heard that song except for me and my kitten. Oh, you sing a song to your kitten? Every morning. Mountain underscore do 69 knows about the song. Just means he's got ears in this house. He could be anywhere. Just listen to the rest of the conversation. I've got ears everywhere, John. Ears and eyes throughout your house, throughout your life. I'm listening to you right now. So have I gotten your attention? Or am I just an idiot like you said on your show? Did I say that? You did. And still I helped you out. Because I'm a good person. You helped us out? How? Who do you think made the spin-off selector box? What? Or, as you so loathsomely referred to it, junk. Or a cute little doodad good for a few laughs. Remember that? Unbelievable. 
You made the box? Finally, you see my genius. You're like a super podcast fanboy. Ah, I am not. I am a chess player of fate, and you are my pawn. Oh, boy. Let me make it simple for you. You have one last chance to prove yourself. I heard your plan of discussing Laverne and Shirley on your season finale. Abandon this plan. Use my selector box to choose your last spin-off. And thank me for it on the show. This I demand. Or what? If I'm not satisfied with the selection method and the resulting in-depth discussion, you'll know. Oh yeah? First, I'll cut the power lines. Then you'll reach for your phones, only to find that cell service is suddenly blocked. Oh no. Then as you cower in the dark, you will know that I am right behind you. You're insane. Splendid. You're starting to understand. Anyway, good luck with the podcast. It's been a terrific season. Are you serious? He's out there listening to Soul Searching and making contraptions and calling you in the middle of the night. This is a crazy person. And I would say let's call the cops or let's sweep the place for bugs, but we have a podcast we need to put out. I'm just going to turn the crank. Hang on. You don't negotiate with a terrorist. I mean, we should probably call the police because... Uh, stop cranking it because that, it could be a bomb. I don't know what's going to happen here. Let's see what it says. Oh, Mork and Mindy. That sounds like fun. Well, we are back, and we're here to talk about the season finale of Better Call Saul's fourth season, and we'll just try to put it out of our minds that we are being listened to by some kind of a maniac who may attack us and cause us physical harm. But I will say at least we've got a couple of mics on this in case this turns out to be evidence one day, right? Mm, right. So this episode was called Winner for super duper obvious reasons. Um, there were several ways in which that name applied to this episode. It was written by the dream team of Peter Gould and Thomas Schnauz, Peter Gould, who co-created the character of Saul Goodman, and Thomas Schnauz, who has been a writer on Breaking Bad in this show and has you know, just been a, one of those key figures in shaping the tone and the characters. And it was directed by Adam Bernstein, the guy who directed all of the early They Might Be Giants videos and uh, the Love Shack video and other things that were huge that I'm just not thinking of right now. But he was a big video director back in the day. And, you know, if you want to talk about defining the visual style of something, he was a big part of Breaking Bad's style book. Right. He's, he's a directorial director. But yeah, so that's a great team. And I would say it was a great episode. Uh, before we dive into some of the individual characters and their plot lines, what did you think of Winner? I thought it was a great episode. I'm uh, happy for it and... Uh, uh, Glad we got to get this much development. It really, it was long to begin with, and on top of that, I felt it moved at a faster clip than a lot of uh, Better Call Saul episodes, and so it kind of was like about two episodes worth of, of juice. They they really did build everything, maybe not from the beginning of the season, but at least for the last four or five episodes, they've been building up to this particular set of climaxes. Yeah. And putting them all in one episode, I agree, did feel kind of like Christmas morning if you're uh, hooked on this show. Yeah. They ended the season feeling very much like the end of a sentence or the, uh, the you know, the, the close of a chapter rather than feeling like we were in the middle right. of something. Right. Right. Um, 
And I would say the only thing that is up in the air for me is the exact role or plan related to what Lalo is doing. But I don't think we need to know more about him right now than that he's just kind of an agent of chaos because he's this new element. And we saw we saw in this episode how ruthless and relentless he is right. when he needs to be. And he's just way too up in Gus's biz. He's just decided this episode, I'm staking out Gus's operation. If somebody's doing things, I'm going to follow them around, even though he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know anything about it, but he's like... I'm going to become a super busybody today. Well, I, I called him a bull in a china shop last week, but I think even more so this week he was that. Right. You got to be more subtle than that if you're going to tail Gus, or at least if you're going to tail Mike, who seems to be um, as yet infallible when it comes to <laughs> seeing the angles of every situation that he's been in. But that was a good bit of Mike business. Mike pulled a mic with the uh, gum being shoved into the, the parking lot arm machine. And I, it, it did occur to me, maybe he knows his way around parking lot equipment from his many days working in one. Right. You should always, this is the lesson though, always keep a pack of chewing gum in case you're being followed. Yeah, we had a debate in my house. Did Mike have that gum because he likes gum and then he thought of using it? Or right. does he keep a pack of gum <laughs> for that purpose? <laughs> right. He's like, here's what you do. He must have thought of this before. I don't know. Maybe maybe the idea is that he's so ingenious that as soon as he sees he's being followed, he's like, I've got a new fresh idea for how to get rid of this guy. But uh, yeah, it seems like something you would have thought of over your years of being a sneaky person. I don't know. But then when Lalo is stuck behind the guy at the arm and he rams his way out, that's just crazy because yeah. to me, it's like Lalo's mission today is... I'm just going to look into what they're up to. I don't know. And it seems like then, if a guy cleverly lost you, you'd be like, oh, well, I'll check him out another day. You know, you wouldn't be like, I'm going to ram this stranger's car. But that just goes to show that he's a nutball. Right. No, totally. I mean, I think that's what you get from that. It's just he's he's not afraid to make a noise. Um, and he's not afraid to have attention on him. And, and I think that makes him seem less smart, but more dangerous. Uh, certainly the worst thing we saw him do, or implied... Uh, was killing Fred, who worked at the Travel Wire place. Right. Poor Fred. He's dead. Lalo's tailing of Mike kind of ended when Mike evaded him at the parking lot. And then we see that Lalo continues to meddle. And he gets information from Werner on the phone, but nothing really that gets acted on. We ended the season with Lalo's existence being sort of just a, a new wild element out there. Yeah, he's going to be a pest, but he doesn't... Uh... He doesn't seem to learn anything except that oh, they're building something. And he seems like he might be a guy who's kind of a blunt instrument rather than someone who has a master plan. But I can see them saving that for next year since there's not time to really get into a long arc with the guy. He definitely is established as a character now. Like when we come back, I will now be saying, okay, Lalo's in the mix. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. Right. He's solidly in the show. But this week we had to uh, skip uh, Nacho. Nacho took a back seat to Lalo. But anyway, about Mike, uh, I enjoyed his uh, uh, capers as usual. He, uh, you know, as soon as he gets the guys out to, to follow Werner, he immediately sends them like, okay, you go to the train station, you go to the train station, and I'll go start doing the smart actual detective work that works. Like he kind of just dispatches with them because he knows that he's going to be the one to catch up with Werner, and he wants to do that so that he can be in control of the situation. Yeah, you see that Mike is privately trying to be the best advocate and ally that that Werner can possibly have in the situation, even though he seems to be aware that at a certain point it's not in his control. And I was impressed, actually, at how much Mike does turn around and level with Gus about everything. He doesn't hide anything from Gus. 
um, which would have been an easy thing to see him do in this storyline. You know right. what I'm saying? Just to see him omit a couple things. But he's pretty upfront with them about what Werner has done and what he thinks he's up to and everything. And then he's upfront with Werner, you know, to tell him, like, this is not a situation where you have any wiggle room at all. You know, I've talked to Gus, and he's not a a, a person who thinks about things. He just does things. <laughs> Right. We see in that scene that Gus is, he had this line, this discussion has no purpose. Right. Um, when Mike is pleading Werner's case in a way that suggests that Mike knows this is an uphill climb, but he's doing everything he can. We, we see Mike's true feelings about Werner in the way that he approaches it with Gus. And then when he's with Werner, it's like he can't waver. He can't really give the guy the warmth in a way that, that we know he feels towards him because he just... It's taking care of business. It's it's cleaning up a loose end. Yeah, and he's signed on as Gus's man here, so I guess that his personal code of ethics means that he's going to do what Gus says, uh, because certainly he could abandon that and say, oh, I'm going to go and set him free myself and bring back a pig's heart like in Snow White or something to say, see, he's dead, you know, or something. Well, I thought about that. And I think Mike is a guy who sees the angles and knows the situation. And at this point, what has been set in motion can either end with him killing Werner or with Werner and Werner's wife possibly being tortured and then killed. Right. Uh, or with the uh, Gus's men coming out here to kill Werner right now. And Mike says, I'll take care of it so that that way Werner doesn't get uh, tortured and killed in some horrible way. Instead, he can kill him in the in the kindest most humane way pretty much that you can think of right and he can prevent Werner's wife from going to the place and causing a stink and therefore being someone who needs to be eliminated by Gus's organization he can have her just turn around and go back to the airport hopefully right um and and minimize that horror and tragedy as well at the end of the episode when when Mike encounters Gus there's a there's a coldness in his stare that's very familiar to us from Breaking Bad when he showed up as this steely-eyed guy. And I think Mike's always been steely-eyed, but I swear Jonathan Banks found a new level of hangdog, steely-eyed <laughs> sadness mm -hmm. in that last scene because it was a, a moment that really did tell us that, much like we can say about Jimmy later on, uh, that Mike has truly crossed a line with this episode that we knew he had not crossed yet. If we want to talk about Werner... It was an incredibly heartbreaking, extended, torturous scene where we know this is coming. And we see Werner go through the different levels of the fact that even though Mike may be his friend, he is not amongst friends. Right. And this is not a matter to be settled amongst friends. This is something else. And Werner was perhaps naive. Right. But he comes to accept it. And then he just kind of says, well, I'm going to let this man kill me in a friendly way instead of kicking and screaming. Right. They spared us, the viewers, as well, watching Werner beg for his life. Yeah. The equivalent of that unpleasantness was watching what he had to say to his wife on the phone mm -hmm. to get her to turn around. He kind of had to do the the old yeller thing. Go on, get, you know. Right. <laughs> right. I, don't, I don't like you. Right. Um, Harry and the Hendersons, I think, also ends with a scene like yes. that. Yes. Uh, and it's always awful. And, and you see Werner, yeah, he kind of accepts it in a very fatalistic kind of tough guy way in his in his I mean he he shows some metal there in how he handles it that he's concerned about his men and he's concerned about his wife right and he does sort of take it with some dignity uh, that line about how there are so many stars visible in uh, New Mexico and how he wants to go out and take a look at them I knew it was coming so it was hard for me to have uh, like uh, an actual weeping <laughs> reaction mm -hmm. but I did think man they did everything they could to make that scene as poetic and and sad and meaningful as it can be to Mike as a character but also the tragedy 
of Werner's character, my standard of tragedy is that you easily see how things could have gone another way. And with Werner, it's just if he could have waited a few more months, he would have seen his wife and had money to last him for the rest of his life. And yet, because he's kind of a romantic fool, um, he became a true fool, you know, in, yep. in terms of this storyline and, and how he how much he did it to himself. Yep. And that in the end, the most he could hope for was just to not have his wife killed, hopefully, and uh, not have his men killed, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, that's truly tragic. So, but now Mike is someone who has killed for Gus, but I don't necessarily feel like that means he's so hardened and that if the next morning Gus said, go murder six people, that Mike is on that level. So he's still, you know, maybe on a spectrum. Gus never said go murder six people, though. I, I'm, it was always job-based. Like, Mike would go right. in as a fixer. And sometimes right. fixing meant taking out a bunch of guys. But usually it was guys who were shooting at him. So we never thought much about the moral toll. Right. But with Saul and with Mike, um, with, or with Jimmy, but we can start saying Saul soon, right? Um, with both of these guys, it's not like they've suddenly flipped a switch and they're not going to be the person they were before. But it felt like a giant leap as well as just a very deliberate step forward in terms of the pacing of this show and what, what they always do. Right. It's a big, big step down the path for, for both of them. The one thing I thought was a brutal and sad and maybe funny editing choice was going from the moment when Mike kills Werner and cutting to Gale. Because all along, I've been thinking of those two characters as analogous, that Werner and Gale are both nice guys mm -hmm. that get caught up in this world where sweetness is a liability. Exactly. But I was thinking of Gale every time Werner came on screen this season of like, oh, yeah, there is another little beautiful bird that flew into the abattoir, you know, <laughs> um, in, in Breaking Bad, and his name's Gale. And so cutting from Werner's death to Gale, to me, just says the writers know that this comparison can be made. Right. Well, we've been alluding to it, so let's go ahead and uh, and jump into the abyss with uh, young Jimmy McGill. If we're looking for the moment when he really takes this, this sharp turn towards Saul Goodman, this episode definitely provided that, and I thought it was beautifully illustrated through Jimmy's relationship with Chuck and his relationship with Kim. It was just a nice culmination of things we've been wondering about and thinking about. I mean, they gave us this delicious flashback that was just a perfect moment to choose. We had never seen a moment where the Brothers McGill were sort of in sync and getting along, and Chuck doesn't have his electromagnetic sensitivity yet, and, and Jimmy is sort of trying to live up to Chuck's example at this point. It was the best possible snapshot of the two brothers on their journey, where they are and what they're like and how they're relating to each other. Um, and I found it beautiful and heartbreaking and, and incredibly well acted. What did you think of that cold open? I thought it was really well done. It was beautiful and and tragic. I mean, it was cool to see uh, uh, to see Michael McKean uh, uh, singing because we get to hear some of the uh, David St. Hubbins pipes. <laughs> but um, uh, anyway, but then, yeah, they, he, he puts him to bed, and then he falls into bed with him, and they're, they're just the most— uh, brotherly, they have that brotherly love, like you said, at the top of the scale, I think, that we've seen it outside of, you know, reading to him in the tent or something. Uh, and that's so uh, contrasted with where we are at the end of the episode with Jimmy having a, a complete disregard for, for Chuck's memory. I'm not settled on the fact that Jimmy's feelings for Chuck are actually as vacant and curdled as he seems to project that they are. But clearly in this flashback, there was none of the overhanging animosity. There was none of the, I can't believe you did this. Now I'm mad you said that. Right. That was nowhere in that scene. I mean, there's a little moment where Chuck takes the mic, and I didn't know if Jimmy was going to be like, now you're trying to 
overshadow me and be the hero here because you're so great and I'm such a uh, scamp and uh, but no that didn't really curdle so it really was all positive it was all positive except for maybe if we want to really look at Michael McKean's extremely subtle performance where when Jimmy's talking about HH and M and M yeah you know and he's talking about adding another McGill brother to HH and M uh, you we know that Chuck would have never wanted that. And in that moment, you can detect that he is playing a beat of not addressing that too directly. It wasn't huge, but it was just a little thing of he didn't really take the bait and say, that sounds great, or yes, we're definitely going to do that, or I can't wait, or anything like that. He just was like, all right, Jimmy. You know, he he kind of brushed it off. And he's a little condescending with his brother throughout that scene, but, you know, what are you going to do? It's your drunk brother who is being very silly, so seemed like about as high as their relationship could get. And then they go back into singing that song. I've always thought that ABBA has this knack for these soaring melodies, and obviously they are very overplayed. And obviously with the Mamma Mia films, it's not like we're lacking for sources of ABBA appreciation. But uh, I still found that to be a, a great song choice for karaoke purposes and for Bob Odenkirk's awful vocal stylings. Mm-hmm. Michael McKean is actually a very talented singer. Yeah. So I like that they made that kind of part of Chuck's personality. We've seen him play the piano. We know that he has this musical side to him. So it it fit that he would have this, okay, you want me to sing? Then I'm going to sing, you know, that he would have that in him. Right. (laughs) Going to do a good job. And, And I'm not drunk. Also, we got a little Ernesto sighting singing Total Clips of the Heart, which has got to be one of the best uh, karaoke songs, right? I yeah. mean, that's got to be somewhere in the top. Well, just because it's one of the best songs of all, I don't know if that means it's uh, one of the best karaoke songs because you're going to be destroying it. Karaoke is about passion is the reason I say yes, that. Yes, for passion, it, yes, yes. For passion, you can't top it. But I thought that uh, Jimmy throughout this episode had had... Great moments. There were a couple of turning points where you see him going down a certain path in his mind, and then he goes back another direction. And it wasn't just random switching back and forth. It felt very human and very real, the way that he and Kim have this scam going on, that he is going to rub it in people's faces how much he cares about Chuck. So that if if word gets around that that's what he's doing, when he goes back in to appeal his case, these lawyers might have heard, oh yeah, Jimmy McGill loved his brother Chuck. He just, for whatever reason, didn't bring him up in this hearing, you know? Right, right. But I thought it was interesting that while that's going on, we do have this sideline of Jimmy's real feelings about Chuck and Jimmy's real feelings about himself that don't really have anything to do with what Kim is doing. Kim is bolstering the best parts of Jimmy and trying to get him set up for this moment that's a challenge, but that she thinks he can beat. And Jimmy is, meanwhile, making plans for himself and going in a direction that is is different, perhaps, than what she is picturing for him. And I don't think that was very clear until the end of the episode. Yeah, he's not really telling anybody where his head is at completely. Right. Well, Kim is watching it, and she's having to slowly admit to herself and cringe every time because I think she goes into the plan going like we'll convince everybody in town through a rumor campaign that uh, you were really into Chuck and you feel a lot of remorse for what you've done and uh, and the, and we're going to do that it'll be easy because it's actually kind of true you know she's she's holding on to that and then he keeps saying and doing these things that that kind of poker with a little elbow that says uh no i don't remember chuck fondly and uh you know when he's at the cemetery she gets a look on her face from some of the things he says and uh just just throughout well and at the at the uh the reading room he's he's being so shallow about it say, saying like oh those those burgers look good and she's like no, no you can't you can't eat the little burgers because you're too upset speaking of the reading room scene though while we're on that but i love the craziness of the uh 
his plan to rescue a judge from a fire, and that was just so intensely awful and so Jimmy, and she just had to, uh, couldn't even say anything. You know, she just had to sort of freeze up and have a little look on her face like, oh my God, and let's just move on without comment. I liked that Kim was, like, she's sneaky enough to want to use Chuck's memory to help Jimmy, but she's not sneaky enough to think that Chuck's memory should be utterly spat upon. Right. Yeah, the next time we see Jimmy is at HH&M, and they are interviewing student candidates for the scholarship that was funded by Chuck's estate. I liked the way that scene was structured with them seeing students come in, and each time the student would get about halfway into their sentence that explains who they are, they bring in another one, and then they started editing more quickly between them. But it just gave you this great picture of these kind of bright young kids that are coming in, and what a positive experience this is, and how everyone in the room is trying to be at their best, probably choosing people who would really benefit from this uh, scholarship. And, and I didn't really know how much of that scene was Jimmy putting anybody on or having a plan. He certainly said some eloquent things in the meeting about Christine Esposito, the uh, the shoplifter, as they say, who who he wanted to give a chance to, but who you can tell the rest of the group wasn't really that into. I mean, there's no way he could have predicted that she would come to that meeting. Right. So that can't have been too calculated. No, I don't think it was calculated at all. I think the only th- only thing calculated is maybe he, he would not have participated on this board because when he was first told about it or Kim was told about it, she talked about how insulting it was or whatever. And I do think he wouldn't have even shown up for this, except that maybe it's getting close to time to... See if he can get reinstated so he's like, I've got to do all the nice, upstanding things. So he comes. But then he is sincere when he hears about the shoplifter. Everything he says is sincere because he's only telling his own story. You know, he's just saying, so this person might have made a mistake, but uh, they could still have something to offer the world. He's It's completely transparent that he's just talking about himself, to us anyway. I guess maybe the people in the room aren't aren't getting it, but... uh, I think Howard was getting it. Right. I think Howard was looking at Jimmy and realizing that Jimmy is talking about giving a chance to someone like himself. Right, right. And so then Howard says, let's take another vote. But then, of course, the girl does not make it because she's a shoplifter, which you'll be branded with forever. I thought that was a very powerful little speech he gives her. Oh, it was fantastic. Which is completely just his own story of his own awful worldview of... You're doomed. Nobody's going to help you. Uh, and so you've got to overcome in your own tricky way and then stand on their throats and laugh. You know, whatever dark, awful thing he says that that uh, just it seems to me like it could it could screw up this young woman for life. You're going to do whatever it takes. Do you hear me? You are not going to play by the rules. You're going to go your own way. You're going to do what they won't do. You're going to be smart. You are going to cut corners and you are going to win. They're on the 35th floor, you're going to be on the 50th floor. You're going to be looking down on them. And the higher you rise, the more they're going to hate you. Good, good. You rub their noses in it. You make them suffer. You don't matter all that much to them. So what? So what? Screw them. Remember, the winner takes it all. I've got to go get my bus. You understand what I'm trying to tell you, right? Yes. I think I do. All right. All right, go get her. For all we know, she goes off and has a a complete turn in her moral character. Well, didn't Jimmy have that experience with the thief 
when he was a kid that you have posited was a huge step in the wrong direction for Jimmy is that someone kind of pointed out to him the difference between sheep and wolves and right. you don't want to be a sheep. Right. The guy comes into the store and says everybody's either a sheep or a wolf when Jimmy's like seven or something. And I think that, that was huge. Well, I think we can sort of see an echo of that in this moment, but also it's totally Jimmy talking to himself. I, I, I began to wonder, like, why is he not leaving this alone and painting such a dark picture of it for this for this young woman? And then it occurred to me that he is kind of coloring it with his own darkness and bitterness about his own situation, but he's trying to give her a pep talk. It's a pep talk in quotes. Mm-hmm. He's trying to give her his version of a hard luck pep talk. Right. Look, I know what you're up against because other people won't pull you aside and tell you this, but you will never be trusted. Right. Kind of what Mike said to Werner out in the desert. Nothing you do will ever make people trust you again. Yes. Yes. And w- we know that's true of many people looking at Jimmy, or at least he feels that it's true. He he feels that the weight of that every time someone looks down on him, he thinks that everyone thinks he's a lowlife. Um, obviously, last week with Kim, that came up in the conversation, but he's kind of telling her what he is really saying to himself, which is give it up, you know, give up trying to appeal to these people. In a a weird way, he's echoing what Chuck said to him last year when he said something like, stop apologizing and embrace who you are. And I think that's why he has the uh, breakdown in his car. When the car won't start, he breaks down and, and cries because he's realizing everything he just told her is true for himself, that they are not going to give it to him, uh, which is, uh, why he, realizes, oh, I can get I can get Chuck's letter out because all this other stuff is probably not working. The breakdown, again, has this little patina of ambiguity to it, though. When he was talking to Christina Esposito, he said, winner takes it all, which we know is the song that he and Chuck sang together that night. Right. So I thought maybe that's a little bit of Chuck dancing around in his brain that made him use that phrasing. And I was thinking like, oh, is he thinking about Chuck when he's in the car and things have gone wrong and he has this emotional breakdown? Mm-hmm. If you look at it one way, it's him realizing that everything he just said to her was true. And it's sort of like he's letting the weight of the truth of it hit him. He's not even lying to himself on a certain level. He's he's realizing, oh, my God, everything I said to her is true about me. And I'm a fool for trying to be something I'm not. You know, that is one thing that becomes a breakdown, perhaps. But also, perhaps... He is thinking about his brother in that moment. And it's like whatever he does later maybe gives the lie to uh, this idea that I have that in some way he's still got feelings connected to Chuck and still has some sincere regret and remorse about the way things went. And as he says later, things he could have said, things he should have said. I don't think that that stuff is just coming out of nowhere. I just think that Jimmy's so disconnected from his feelings right. that he, he's not realizing their relationship ended at a point where there, was, there could never be a settled, happy situation. It ended in a, in a bad way. That could be the writers uh, baiting the hook for me to believe that maybe Jimmy is having sincere emotions about Chuck so that later we can see, oh, he wasn't. Right. And he gets in there and abandons his letter and starts improving and he, and he says that bit about, uh, if you decide I get to be a lawyer, I'll, I'll do everything in my power to be worthy of the name McGill. And then five minutes later, he's like, let me uh, fill out the form. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to be James McGill. But it's such a heel turn that you almost have to watch it twice to realize how quickly he goes from performative, remorseful Jimmy to, I guess, just down the hall from that room and speaking loudly about what suckers they are and how they bought it. I know. I really thought he's going to, somebody was going to come out and hear him the way he was like, these bunch of jerks, ha ha ha. You know, it was really dangerous. But what was especially shocking was that when when the, uh, I don't know if it was a clerk or it was another lawyer that was, but someone from the board that came up to him that said, 
we've got some good news for you. And he's like, I know it. <laughs> you know, he doesn't, he's like full of himself. And, and then he says, and sweetheart, right. the way he said sweetheart was so Saul and so like, boy, he has switched gears. He's not pretending to be the guy he was in that room at all anymore. Uh, that's true. But also they're showing us that what Kim is reacting to is that he kind of turned into Mr. Hyde from Dr. Jekyll right in front of her eyes. Jekyll had that inside him all along. It's not a different guy. Right, and it's such a hard hit for her too because she just shed a tear in the room and then they come out and he's like, did you see that asshole crying? Or whatever about the guy. And uh, Kim is just like knocked in the stomach going like, oh God, it was completely false. There's nothing real to what he just said. Right. Did you see those suckers? That one asshole was crying. He had actual tears. Jesus, Kim. Listen, I started reading the letter, and I just knew it wasn't... I could tell by their faces it wasn't going to be enough, right? So I just went off on this flow, you know. I had this energy going through me. It was like improv or jazz, and then, boom, I sunk the hook in. So lucky I have this letter. God, I could see the Matrix, you know. I was invincible. I could dodge bullets, baby. And you were right. You were right. It was all about Chuck the whole time. Oh, Mr. McGill, you're still here. There's some good news. Believe me, I already know. Oh, good. Then if you want to come with me to the office, there's some paperwork for you to sign. Absolutely. Let's do this thing. Oh, and sweetheart, I'm going to need one more form. Uh, DBA. Because I'm not going to be practicing under the name McGill, so... Shouldn't be a problem. Just down the hall, we have all the floors. Great, great. Wait, wait, Jimmy, Jimmy, what? It's all good, man. Then she witnesses him saying, I'm going to work as as, uh, Saul Goodman and and is completely taken by surprise. Uh, Which surprised me, too, because, uh, you know, I had thought there's going to be some more practical cause for it. And they have set it up to where it's totally smooth to feel like, Oh, he would do this now if he wanted to and thought it was a good idea, so that's fine. But, you know, I just thought for all the world there would be some some uh, uh, loophole he had to get around wherein they said you can't uh, be a lawyer and he had to change his name in order to work or something. But, uh, no, it, it just was as simple as that, it's just that he has come to this idea over time and uh, likes it. Well, he's a two birds kind of guy, you know, like while I'm down here and I'm filling out these forms, I may as well get the license with Saul Goodman on it, I guess. Right. And while I'm feeling completely jaded about Chuck and and, and the name McGill, I may as well go ahead and change my name from McGill. But also while I'm full of myself from this victory, I'm not thinking clearly about how this looks bad or how people might already be going, who is this guy? Yeah. Who is this chimp we just gave a machine gun to? Right. There's an interview on entertainmentweekly.com, I believe where Bob Odenkirk talks in depth about the arc of Jimmy this season, and particularly about that scene and that that ending moment. Uh-huh. And he had a, a pretty interesting insight into that. They said, are those feelings he expressed on when he was before the board sincere? And he said, yes, the way that a kid is sincere when they're throwing a tantrum to get a cookie. Right. He said, in that moment, the kid wants that cookie so bad that they will throw a tantrum. Right, but they did have to kind of decide to do it. They're sincere in their desire to have a cookie and in believing that if this is what it takes, I'm going to do it. Then you give a kid a cookie and they're fine. And he was saying, did all those feelings go away because they got the cookie? That maybe to the child's mind, yes, I got the cookie. I'm not thinking about the fact that I just accessed this emotion and harnessed it and used it like a weapon to get something that I wanted because I am sitting here with a cookie. 
And so thinking of Jimmy McGill as like the kid who has the cookie and isn't thinking about what he just did to get what he got. Yep. And he's not thinking about the way it looks or the 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 long-term effects of doing this. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a very interesting analogy that, again, may not be what the writers intended, but I definitely can see how if you're playing that guy, I don't think you can have a moment like the moment he had on uh, in, the, in front of the board and say this is 100% insincere. I think it is perfect analogy. The difference between a child and Jimmy is that Jimmy is very aware that he's doing this, I think, or at least he's aware that he's turning it on and he's manipulating people and he's proud of it. Yeah. I think it does kind of make perfect sense for him to change his name in that moment, too, when you think about um, uh, basically he just went before this board that said, uh, okay, you can be a lawyer, but uh, only if you agree with us that you're forever attached to Chuck, that you think about Chuck all the time and honor Chuck and, and love Chuck. That That's the condition by which you get to be a lawyer. And so he says, I'll take that license, but screw you. I am Saul Goodman now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept the license and, and, and practice law, but not under your condition that I have to think about Chuck all the time. Right. It is, a, it is very much a middle finger to them as well. You're correct. It's, at least I think it serves that purpose for Jimmy of feeling like nobody controls me, nobody owns me, nobody gets to define uh, what my success is and, and who I am. But what does this mean about Jimmy and Kim going forward? Uh, uh, first episode of next year, how much are we going to see them sort of still uh, having a peaceful relationship? Or is she more and more concerned with what he's up to and his brokenness? How long is this going to take to either fall apart or what's going to happen? Going forward, it's going to be a little bit different because Kim has had more than just a glimpse of Slip and Jimmy. She's seen that ultimate betrayal of, as you said, Chuck's memory and anybody else that was moved by Chuck's memory or was moved by his thoughts about Chuck's memory. So I think once you've made a fool of her and she knows you did it, even if Jimmy doesn't realize he did it, there's a limited amount of time that they can proceed the way that they are right now without her either taking a turn for the worse and getting dragged down to his level or without him stopping this development that we know he's not going to stop. I mean, I don't think the writers are going to backslide and start off next season with him trying to walk the straight and narrow. I think the reason he chose the name Saul Goodman is the reason he stated at the beginning of last week, which is that he's already known to the criminals that he might like to have his clients by that name. Right. I mean, they've already set it up that that would be kind of the trajectory he's on. So yeah, I don't know how much Kim's going to want to hang out with that because I think that's his plan. Right. Because of that argument on top of the parking deck where they kind of laid it all out. We know that Jimmy thinks sort of about Kim even, the way that he expressed to Christy Esposito that she should feel about the powers that be in her life, which is that they're never going to let you prove yourself after this thing you did. And we know he said to Kim, when you look at me, you see Slip and Jimmy. Yep. So I think he's fine with being with someone who he thinks has this compromised view of him because he's saying, well, fine, I have free reign now to be this person and to be successful. Like before they went in, she said, however this turns out, I'm with you. Um. I think Jimmy might be taking that a little too literally in his mind and a little too far with with what she'll take and exactly what she's on board for. And I think maybe that will be a huge part of next season. It will be seeing the way that being Saul Goodman wears on the thing that Jimmy and Kim have, and particularly on Kim. I wonder, too, if um, if he will still be focused on getting an office with her and if that'll be a big hassle for them that he still really wants that and that she doesn't. I feel like some part of him has already said she's never going to want to share an office with me, so I don't have to answer to her. 
Right. No, that's a good and easy time to completely throw out that that uh, notion. But I'm just saying it's a, it, it also is a story that I think they could say, oh, let's make that a huge part of their thing for next season is that, that they've got this conflict. Yeah. Because they, you know, they did drag it out so, so cleanly in that in that fight on the parking deck. Right. I, but I felt like that was them kind of putting the knife in the back of that idea. But you're right. We don't know if maybe he's got some logo designs for uh, Wexler and Goodman. It doesn't sound as good, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, nanu, nanu, Chris. Hey, nanu, nanu. Now's the time we jump in a giant egg and we fly through the galaxy with our friend Robin Williams, the late, great Robin Williams, and visit Earth. Yep. Both in the 1970s and in the 1950s. Yep. It's a confusing and tangled web of science fiction ideas and sitcom tropes that came on television in 1978 under the name Mork and Mindy. He was a time traveler as well as a uh, spacefarer. Yes, he was. Um, one thing I really noticed right out of the gate about Mork and Mindy was that it was born of the same exact cultural moment that gave us Galaxy Goof-Ups. Galaxy Goof-Ups came on in the winter or fall of 1978. Yep. And this show, which was a spinoff of a Happy Days episode from February of 1978, came out in September of 1978. I haven't revisited uh, this show in a long time, but it was instantly familiar. I don't know if you had that feeling watching uh, the first episode of Mork and Mindy. Uh, yeah, it was super familiar because I think I saw uh, at some section of my life during reruns, I, I saw a lot of episodes of Mark and Mindy over and over. So uh, it definitely uh, a lot of the lines rang totally familiar. Had you connected it to the kind of space craze of the late 70s before? I hadn't thought that much about that. But yeah, I think that when they put Mork on Happy Days, maybe they, they were saying, hey, Star Wars, let's let's get an alien thing going on in here and actually i did read something about how um the uh uh director jerry paris who who directed a bunch of uh happy days and a bunch of uh, dick van dyke that he had done that uh space alien episode of dick van dyke and then said let's do a space alien episode uh, of happy days and sort of did the same thing and uh, had it end up like oh it was all a dream but then they decided uh, I guess they, they loved Robin Williams so much, we're going to make him his own show. And so then they said, I think they actually changed the end of the Happy Days episode to where it was not all a dream. Right. They added a scene at the end with Mork uh, erasing everyone's memories, but it was real. Retconned. Mork is really this very loosely defined set of jokes that you can add up into a character. Yeah. If Mork says this is true of Orkins, they try to make that part of his character going forward. But there's a lot of just silly jokes and silly lines and... They do things in a different way on Orc than they do here on Earth, Chris. Right, but it's so absurd and silly that it definitely seems like it's opposite day. Let's let's come up with things that a, a child would giggle at, you know, where it's like, he sits on his face, you know, he, dr- he drinks with his finger or whatever silliness like that. Supposedly, when, when, when Robin Williams went into audition for the part of Mork, Gary Marshall said, take a seat, and Robin Williams went over and sat on his head. Right. And that's how he got the job. Right. Because he was going, I'm an alien, and it's a funny. I'm a comedy alien. This is what I would do. And that's why Mork and Mindy is a classic thing that I think should be remembered. Uh, uh, as goofy as it is, it is the showcase that showed us Robin Williams and his amazing skills and launched him as, as, a, uh, uh, as, as an important actor 
and his age. You never know with the with the laugh track situation on these old shows, but it feels like the audience is really there for the the absurdity of the alien lifestyle, the opposite day routine that you were just talking right. about. You know, we wear our shoes on our hands. It's just like right. sometimes it doesn't go much further than that, but it does seem like people are primed to be delighted with Robin Williams' antics right. and with this notion that just this alien is wacky and he does things differently. But it, it's made magical because he can take something as stupid as, I mean, I know they don't really wear their shoes on their hands, but for that example, he could take something as simple and dumb as that, and it's the way he says it and the speed and the enthusiasm and the timber, uh, and then saying part of it under his breath and immediately turning into a high-pitched fly voice, all these little things that uh, make it really funny whether whether the thing that was in the script was funny or not. He's so often able to make it funny or able to improv something better a lot of times, I think. You can't miss Robin Williams's spark if you watch this. And certainly in that time when nobody had seen... Robin Williams, except the you know a few people who might have seen his stand up on HBO or something, he was not a big thing, and so for this suddenly this wild improv minded guy to bust out outside of Jonathan Winters, it was uh, really crazy and fresh, and and then he he was getting huge in stand up at the same time for being so nutty, which is why it's interesting that they brought Jonathan Winters onto the show to play Mork's son, who was born as an old man and hashed out of an egg that Mork laid, right. Spoiler alert, if anyone was hearing this and thought maybe they'd go through episode by episode. But I remember that as much as I remember other aspects of the show, and that was a last season thing. That was a last season attempt to bring some some life back to the show. Oh, Mirth was the last season? I thought he was in the middle somewhere. He was in the last season. Wow. Before we get too ahead of ourselves, it would be worth setting up just what Mork and Mindy was and what this pilot episode contains in terms of story. Mork is this alien from this planet called Orc, whereas we've mentioned they do very opposite day-ish things. They do wacky things. And he's sent to Earth to do research, basically, and send back information to his overlord, this guy named Orson. Right. Bork? Good morning, Orson. Orson. You call me Orson to my face, but behind my back you call me Fatso, rocket ship thighs, and star tush. You forgot laser breath. <laughs> Sorry, your immenseness. See what I mean? These constant displays of humor are not acceptable behavior here on Ork. You're right. We are rather a dull lot. The white bread of the universe. Emotions have been... Every episode ends with Mork reporting to Orson uh, with what he's learned about humankind that week. And sometimes it's kind of a exactly that, a what we learned today thing. But oftentimes it's just a little gag thrown in at the end to sort of pay honor to the idea that this is his assignment and he's, he's here gathering information. Right. And this episode shows how he arrives on Earth... At a time and a place where a woman named Mindy is out in her Jeep having a bad date. And it's a terrible mess of a story point. She's out there with a guy and she's saying, get your hands off me, you creep. Right. And then he drives off in her Jeep and it's just kind of a gag. It's like, he's taking my car. But there's no real indication about how they resolve that situation. You know, is this her boyfriend who just drove the Jeep to her house and left it there? It just feels like a crazy situation for her to be in. She's she's strongly suggested that she's groped by this guy and then abandoned out in the middle of nowhere as he steals her car. And there's not another mention of this guy in the episode. Right. That's just how bad dates are. Exactly. In the 70s, they were terrible, um, even though you would think that Colorado would be a, a, a kinder, gentler place. Yeah. Um, but what you have then is the murderously cute Pam Dauber bouncing off of the wacky alien. But she also has this relationship with her dad where he's still pretty nosy. And I think it's just a sitcom formula thing of that era that you had to have somebody who was 
disapproving of whatever living arrangement the lead characters are involved in. Right, in a secret farce where you're trying to hide things. Fred McConnell, Mindy's dad, is this straight-laced music aficionado who seems very much like he would have been the high school uh, music teacher or something. He's just got that that personality type. Yeah. And he's meant to be a little bit of a square and a little bit of a disapproving figure, but he also, when he gets frustrated, he goes off and hangs out in his store and drinks himself into a stupor and hangs out with a local cop <laughs> who gets involved in the story. So so as that as a character, I mean, I remember him being a regular for at least the first season or two. I believe they phased him out and back in over the course of the show. Right, right. There were a lot of attempts over the four-season life of Mork and Mindy to change the formula to get back to the rating success of the first season when it was number three in the ratings. Yeah, it came out huge. And then in the subsequent seasons, uh, second, third, and fourth season, it was ranked respectively 27th, 49th, and 60th. Yes, it was just super tanking. What I remember reading was that the show got away from the Mork tries to figure out life on Earth stuff and got more into Mork and Mindy's romance, Mm -hmm. which I guess maybe wasn't as compelling to audiences, but there's also a time slot change. They moved it around. They tried to do what networks love to do, where they take a successful show and move it to another night. And it sounds like it never was able to get an audience there and then when they moved it back it couldn't get it back and so it had kind of missed its shot yeah i think i think it might be an example of of execs getting too many ideas like i think that it was a hit the first year and that maybe the executives for some weird reason said yeah but let's have him be less weird and have it be less about him being an alien it's more like a normal sitcom and let's not put in Weird stuff, you know, it's something he's not going to drink with his finger this year. You know, I just that's my suspicion. And that then they probably lost all the people who liked Mark the best, or they lost the kids or something. And then they, I think they actually had to, they did try to retool in season three or four that they, they did consciously go like, okay, let's, let's bring Mark back to Mark. I would agree with that because I think the second season is when they shifted the focus more to the romance, but. The first two episodes of the second season were a two-parter where Mork shrinks and goes to a miniature world oh, yeah, that, that cool. exists within our world. Right. And um, I remember that episode being very upsetting to me because I believe there's a scene where he shrinks down to the point where you can't see him. And right. I was young enough when that came on. I mean, I must have been seven. I was upset by that. I, I It was one of those times where I had adults telling me, he's not dead. He's not dead. And just waiting for the commercial break to be over and for us to see Mork again, you know. Yeah, that was strong. So that's the setup of the show. Mork comes to Earth. He meets Mindy. And she's kind of a, I don't know, maybe impulsive young person. But there's not much of a huge flaw given to her in this episode, except that she's just kind of like presented as a semi- directionless kid who just kind of goes along with this crazy guy who she at first thinks is a a man of the cloth and then turns out to very quickly learn and believe that he's an alien who's benevolent, who she can let stay in her house. Right. I thought that was well done, actually. They spent that whole first episode making us believe that that setup would work. And, you know, at the end, he's living there. And and I don't question it. Well, they had an hour to do it. It's it's an hour long pilot, so it's pretty involved. But I thought that... uh... That opening was actually uh, uh, cleverly and well done. The fact that he, he puts on a normal suit backwards, so to her, he, he looks like a priest. And then not until they get into her house does she see him from behind, and you have that big reveal uh, to her. Uh, that, that was a, a smart little way to do it. Your suit's on backwards. It is. Boy, do I feel like a clone. <laughs> Who are you? I am Mark from Mark. <laughs> 
Nanu, nanu. Ork? Yes, you see, Ork is a planet. You follow the Big Dipper till it comes to a dead end, then you hang an up. An up? Up, down, hard to tell out in hyperspace. Oh, right. I have a, a poor sense of direction myself. So, you're, you're from outer space. Yes, and you mind if I take a few pictures for the folks on the home planet? <laughs> They'd like to get some postcards. Um, no. Okay, watch the fluky. <laughs> And they, and they kept him from being too lecherous with her in the opening of the show, which made it seem more like she would be talking to this guy and just relating to him as a guy and not be skeeved out by him, you know? Yeah. Um, when he tells her about his adventure, when he came to Earth, and it's just kind of a follow-up to one of his Happy Days appearances, but it's a, it's a new adventure in those days. I guess because it was a spinoff, they wanted to make sure they had this strong connection to the Happy Days universe. Yeah. But he tells her, and they, we see a prolonged flashback of him going back to Earth. And this is not something that happened on Happy Days. It's just something that guest stars um, uh, Henry Winkler as Fonz, who is in it's, – it's a great way to strip down the Happy Days uh, – uh, like cast to say that they're the, the Cunninghams are out of town and Fonz is, is like house sitting. Right. And that's when Mork shows up, but Fonz sets him up with Laverne who comes over and the way that Mork behaves with Laverne could be depicted as a horror film. If it were filmed differently and didn't <laughs> right. have the giant laugh track, he is so lecherous and so creepy and chasing her around and like it, it gets violent. He's kicking her and stuff. I felt like that again. I totally see the childlike spirit in which it was intended. Yeah. Like no one was stopping to say, wait, a minute is this really off-putting what he's doing here what, what, what happened? you touched me yeah, i went like this ah! no no gang nap gang nap oh no give me your earlobe your earlobe delicious one oh. i think you're getting off on the wrong foot buddy oh wrong foot sorry She likes me. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, I didn't hardly even see it that way because they so make him a weird child who's only had this one little experience. And when you touch his wrist, he goes into a frenzy and then she touches his wrist. But now when we look back on any kind of um, comedy chasing of women around the room, uh, it's different. So now Harpo uh, could be swept up in the in the Me Too movement or any old comic strip where the boss chases the secretary around in a circle, you could say, that's not funny anymore. Right. I agree 100%. That's not funny anymore. Okay. <laughs> and I'm not saying when I watch Harpo, I, I start making protest signs. I'm just saying I think that we can look at that and say, yes, as far back as Harpo, we were seeing this kind of cute, funny idea of sexually harassing a woman. Right. That scene was a different version of Mork than we usually get. His version... That deals with uh, Mindy is much more gentlemanly and sort of childlike. Right. But, yeah, they really brought the big guns out when they put the uh, the Fonz and Laverne on the pilot of Mork for this whole, like, uh, uh, you know, I don't know if it's a 15-minute section out of the hour or something. Uh, I, I guess they just were uh, they were doing business and saying, we're going to make sure people watch this. 
I guess, because it didn't add anything else to the story. There was no other reason why we would want to think Mork had come back to the 50s a different time. Right. Maybe after Mork was a show, he came back on Happy Days one more time, and it was a clip show. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, he's been time traveling and zipping around. Um, And, you know, I guess, case in point, we've been talking about this scene this whole time without really mentioning we do get a little bit of Laverne. We didn't talk about Laverne and Shirley this episode, but... But we did talk a little bit about Laverne. Knowing what you know about the character from Laverne and Shirley, how did you feel her appearance in this, you know, this franchising attempt? Uh, how do you feel it reflected the the true Laverne? Uh, it was great. She stayed right in character. She shows up because uh, on Laverne and Shirley, really, uh, Laverne is the fun-loving one. And uh, Cheryl is the little uh, sweet church mouse who wants to save herself for marriage. And so... Laverne, true to form, shows up like Fonz called her. Hey, I got a date for you. And she's like, okay, here I am. I took the bus and I'm going to accept some deep kisses from Fonzie while he, you know, makes me stand where he wants me to stand. And this is just going to be a fun night. Uh, but of course, uh, also true to her form, she thinks she's up for anything. But then as soon as she meets a weirdo, she's going to uh, run from him or protest. And uh, sure enough, this guy is so weird that uh, uh, she she almost uh, can't deal with him at all. So let's talk a little bit more about what Mork and Mindy represents to you. Did you have an opinion in your head that was challenged by watching it again uh, when we saw it for this? Because for me, it was a little bit of a reminder of what the show was really like. Yeah, I've always remembered it fondly, and I always liked it as a kid, and I've never had a, a problem with it in particular. And I think as a kid, it did give me some warm feelings of just for some reason I identified with Mark as either a weirdo or a silly person who you would think would be uh, uh, an unlikely romantic partner so maybe I could watch that and say oh, I might be able to have a cute girlfriend in life if this alien can do it um, but uh, yeah I think I saw so much of it as a kid that a lot of the lines even even just from this pilot here were like lines from a, a Bugs Bunny cartoon or something that I've seen a hundred times where it's just like, yep, there he's saying that. And so that stuck with me, and it's just super nostalgic. I love watching old stuff from my childhood, so I had a, had a good time. And uh, uh, one of them is uh, where he pulls the eggs out of the fridge, and he says, fly, be free, and throws the egg up, and the egg hits the counter. I mean, that is a huge sitcom moment yeah. in my mind like that moment when when that moment occurred in this episode i said oh my god fly be free is one of the things you think of when you think of mork right You have nothing to lose but your shells. As much as I like Mindy, it's against intergalactic law to eat fellow space travelers. Fly, be free! <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to have a quick burial at sea then. <laughs> Not I'll only was it a famous day. moment from the show that people immediately imitated and I heard people say fly be free constantly mm -hmm. I feel like I feel like it's just in my brain pan because of that right but also when Comedy Central before it was Comedy Central and it was like Comedy Channel I guess and they used to show clips uh -huh. of sitcoms that they would also rerun uh -huh. they had that scene from Mork and Mindy and they would run that scene yeah and so I think if there's a way that you feel like you've seen some of these moments, like more than you think you've actually watched the show, right. there's a possibility you've seen some of these scenes 
50 times. Right. And I'm not kidding. When you think about how much they used to run those clips. Right. But like right to the moment when the cop comes in and Mork has hid the eggs all over the place. Right. You know, the blundering cop comes in and sits on one. Um, I remember that bit, like like it's some classic comedy moment. But, uh-huh. you know, it's, I mean, it's okay, I guess. But it's just, it's just so silly. And then what happens is he arrests Mork. And I wanted to bring this up because this is a parallel. He arrests Mork and the episode hinges on a climactic hearing where Mork takes control of the room and um, in this case proves that he's not too insane to be out on the streets. Right. To this, to a board, very much like the assembled board in the episode of Better Call Saul that Jimmy faces yeah. at the end of the season finale of, of that show. And it ends in a very similar way, except uh, at the end of the Mork pilot, it's like Mork is still the same sweet guy we knew, and he and Mindy are happy um, that he did. And she says, we won, we won. But I was thinking like, wow, this ending is so close to, if not identical to, the end of the Better Call Saul finale, where Kim's effusive, saying, we won, I can't believe we did it. Right. The difference is Jimmy's not an endearing guy who's about to go drink some juice with his fingers he's a guy right. who is now about to go you know aid and abet criminals <laughs> and get his hands as dirty as possible right, so right so i thought wow finally like a real like a much stronger parallel than i think we've had between the the two episodes we've been comparing right that is pretty pretty strong uh from that scene is another line that stuck in my head over the years for some reason it's not even a big comedy line but just the rhythm of it kind of like fly be free um gets stuck in your head this got stuck in my head, which is where he's doing word association with one of the lawyers, and Mork says sex, and the lawyer says Pamela, and Pamela is the stenographer in the room. And by the way, he flunked his word association test outright yesterday. That's the test where I give him words like, uh, like white, black, tall, uh, short, sky, birds, sex, uh, Pamela. You said you'd never tell. Oh. <laughs> never tell, never tell. You promised. And she stands up and says, you said you'd never tell, never tell, and runs out. (laughs) And that's so odd and specific. Uh, It's almost like a line from a horror film or something, the way she does it. And uh, and then she runs from the room and it causes chaos. And and the judge says, okay, there's nobody here to help me anyway, so uh, you can go. Just the cadence of that, for some reason, has stuck with me for 30 plus years, 40 years, whatever it's been. I believe that was another one of the clips that got run ad nauseum on on Comedy Channel back in the day. Oh, okay. Maybe that's why it was so familiar. Because, yeah, Pamela! You said you'd never tell! Never tell! Like, why do you say that twice? It doesn't make any sense that she says it twice. So it's like, yeah, it's it's a crazy little little vignette of this little soap opera happening at this I don't know, courthouse? Where are they? What is this scene? It's not, it's not very clear what has happened. All we know is that the cop apprehends Mork and takes him in. Right. But at the end, he's free, and he's living with Mindy, and Mindy's dad seems to be accepting now. He's more on Mork's side than he is on the side of the establishment that was trying to deem him insane. I think the dad is still probably in the in the wings saying, what's going on here? But I don't think the show consists of him being the, the you know, the, the, the Budinsky who, who won't let Mork be. But maybe I'm wrong. <clears throat> right. I think they do still, you know, keep him as somewhat of a Budinsky through the season and have him, have them try to keep secrets from him and, and such maybe. But yeah, certainly. And that's it's a good reason to have an hour-long pilot because that way it does feel by the end of it like, okay, I guess he's all right with his daughter living with an alien man after he's seen him this many times and learned to enjoy his company in some small way. Whereas if you try to do all that in a half hour, it, it might feel like too much. Right. It a lot of times with a with a pilot you get especially on a sitcom you get the 
episode that sets up the scenario. And then you get a second episode that's really more like the first episode of the show. Yeah. And this kind of did both. I, on top of watching the uh, pilot for Mark and Mindy, I remembered that there was an arc at the end of the show over a few episodes where he makes an enemy and there's some action adventure. And so I wanted to revisit that. But then this arc that could have been at the end of the show, they put one more episode after that. So I ended up having to watch the last four episodes of Mork and Mindy to uh, to get a good idea of what, what they did there. And uh, it was fun. I enjoyed it. It was crazy. But uh, the, the series is called Gotta Run, and there's three episodes of that. And Mork uh, meets this... Uh, uh, evil alien from Neptune, played by Joe Rigobudo. Who did he play? Frank on uh, Murphy Brown? That's right. And he makes an enemy of this alien. And so then he and Mindy are on the run from this from this alien for, for a few episodes. And uh, uh, it's typical Mark and Mindy, a lot of fun, goofy jokes. And it's got uh, 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 plenty of, um, of Jonathan Winters, too, uh, which is great, of course. You bring in a second improv tour de force uh, to uh, bounce off Robin Williams. You, you just can't go wrong. That's too fun. Funny thing, you know, the way uh, Jonathan Winter's character's name is Mirth. Right. The fantasy world that Mork goes off to when he shrinks in the opening of season two mm-hmm. is also named Mirth. Oh, weird. Doesn't it seem like they should have come up with something different? <laughs> yeah, that's one of those times where you just say, eh, we're going to steal from ourselves because this is too perfect the justification for for his son Mirth's name was it's Mork plus Earth. Mirth. Right. Mork's from Ork. Mirth is from Earth. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Seems like they had a cliffhanger ending for the season and then got canceled. And then they moved an episode from earlier in the season that was just kind of a normal episode to put at the end of that arc, which I guess implies that maybe things got back to normal, but you've told me that that three-episode arc ends on a real cliffhanger that, that really needs a resolution. So basically they had one episode after that that completely ignored the uh, the adventure from the previous three episodes, and then that was the last episode that aired. Is that correct? Yes, it is a real lame disappointment because they set you up to... It just becomes an adventure show for three episodes. I mean, still with plenty of comediness and sitcominess and everything, but it's... Um, uh, they are on the run from episode to episode, and then you end the third one with them taking off through time. At this point, it's become a time travel show, and they take off through time yet again. Where are we going to end up this time? And then, because they got canceled without expecting it, I guess, then it goes to a, an episode that is has nothing to do with any of that, and it's just more giving sort of a... a uh, uh, a long report to Orson, which I guess is like a clip show. I suppose all the all the parts of that are are from previous episodes. And I, yeah, I guess their intention was for you to watch that and go like, "Oh, I guess everything's fine." Uh, even though last time we saw them, it looked like they were hurtling through time and could end up anywhere. So uh, that is a sad, uh, sad thing. They didn't get to wrap that up on purpose, but it, to me, it seems like a uh, uh, a cautionary tale for shows like. Uh, Better Call Saul, where, you know, you need to really plan this out as good as you can. You might not know how many more seasons you've got, but do your best, please, to not uh, 
end up with something like this where you're going along and you seem to be in the middle of something and now you're off the air. Well, our beloved show Last Man on Earth did that this last season. Oh, yeah, that was the worst. I mean, a show that came back from the brink of cancellation maybe twice before it ended and then was kind of banking on giving another season based on the way they left things. Right. I don't know if anybody wanted to tell more story with Mark. I mean, was Robin Williams maybe not already trying to... I mean, this would have been like 82, 83. He was doing a lot of movies. I could believe that he's not like thrilled to come back and do this show. Maybe he was contractually obligated. Right. The only reason the show seems like it would be on at this point would be because he was on it, because it was not a hit by the fourth season. I'm very mystified by that that aspect of the show's life. I think maybe he never liked the show much, uh, which is a weird thing to me because it just seems like such the perfect... Robin Williams showcase that to to be doing that and not loving it it's it's a sad state of affairs that, that if he didn't you know it seems to me like the one person who should be able to love Mark and Mindy would would be Robin Williams but um it does seem like they were trying to tell more story because I thought as I was watching the the three-part arc that um I thought they were headed towards a purposeful ending like they knew the series was over and that they were telling us the final story because uh he has to come out to the world as an alien during that, and he gets famous. So uh, if their plan was not to end the show there, then maybe their plan was that next season he would be this uh, famous alien with a TV show who was constantly hounded by the press uh, and stuff like that, or that they go into hiding and live on a ranch. I don't know what their plan was, but uh, something to that effect. I did read that the fourth season... One of the ways they kept the show around was by agreeing to put more guest stars on the show hmm. and do more stunt casting type stuff, uh, you know, bringing in celebrities where they could to really pump up episodes, which was a big thing on sitcoms for a while of just having a certain grade of celebrity that would just kind of some athlete or different strokes is going to have Nancy Reagan on it or something right. like that. It would just be this big deal. Um, and I know there was an episode of Mark and Mindy where they meet Robin Williams. Oh, where Robin Williams is in town doing a show and Mork goes and talks to him and they do a cross the table. I think there's this, I mean, unless oh. I'm completely imagining this, I remember there being an episode like that. So I could see that if they were to continue in the fifth season, maybe they were trying to say the whole format of the show would be different and maybe would be more satirical almost. Right. Um, but it, at least it's set up so that you can believe that they did travel through time and they ended up back where they should be. Yeah. You can write that story in your head. Right. But that's another thing that made it seem like they were really... Uh, ending it because they blew up the apartment, which is something that is uh, huge on a sitcom where you've watched for years this same set just looking like uh, like a set you're used to, and then suddenly you're going to have an explosion in there, and uh, all the stuff is is turned to ashes all over the floor. Uh, it's it's wild, but they yeah they, I mean you could say oh they cleaned it up and they were they were okay after that. Maybe that was the intention, but I think maybe they're going to have a move. She actually says, I have a feeling we'll never see this place again at the end of one of the episodes, which felt very, you know, on a sitcom where you're used to everything being basically okay, just, there's just the, the all the stories are based on minor misunderstandings or whatever, to have, oh, we just had an explosion in the apartment, and uh, this female robot blew up, and her head kind of hangs in the air as it as as it slow motion explodes and then they have to go on the run and Mindy says I have a feeling we'll never see this place again that's heavy that's really it's like the last episode of of Mary Tyler Moore or something where you're like wow 
It's so heavy that I remember that. Yeah. Like, I remember watching this episode at least once when it was on, and then once in reruns. I'm sure I saw it in reruns. Right. And I remember that line rattling me, and I remember being young enough for that kind of line to rattle me. I mean, old sitcoms would end, and I would be watching it with my parents, like the last episode of Barney Miller or something like that. And there's the moment at the end where he looks in the, the precinct for the last time, and he turns off the light. You know, right. I remember those moments would hit me. You know, I would get emotionally affected by those moments because those shows, I mean, for better or for worse, we watched those shows a lot, and I saw the reruns of them a lot. So I feel like there's a final episode vibe you can feel coming on that is kind of melancholy. And I do remember that moment where she said that. And I remember being a kid and thinking like, this must be ending. And if not, I was thinking, oh, this must Mm -hmm. be changing. And on some level that that rattled me a little bit to think that it was not going to be this reliable formulaic thing. It'd be pretty meta if their plan was to end the show with, you know, we're traveling through time and we don't know where we're going to end up. And there you go. Hmm. Like, you know, to cut off the story before it's really done and say, that's it is kind of a, an interesting thing to do to your audience. Yeah. Well, what else did you learn from those final episodes? Um, Mindy's hair is different. Now she's got a curly perm instead of the adorable pigtails or puppy dog tails, whatever you would call it, where where she had in the first season. You would sort of put a barrette on each side of your head so that it would fall in a particularly cute little way. But, um, uh, yeah, outside of that, which does feel different to me, I guess having lived through that time, Knowing the difference in hair between 1978 hair and 1982 hair, I could totally see like, oh, yeah, she wouldn't have had this hair before, but now she's got it. Yeah, that's a sad difference. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the the difference between late 70s and early 80s in terms of the hair in particular is is usually like a downturn, you know? Uh-huh. It's not like you not you don't suddenly – oh, the perms and the hairspray and stuff don't suddenly seem better than somebody just kind of having – you know, long flowing locks. Fluffy feathered hair. That's the summary of the whole show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's really what it all boils down to. And I hope that's a satisfactory assessment for our one now very important listener, Mountain underscore do sixty nine. I hope that was good enough. I don't have much else to say about Mork. I don't have much else to say about Better Call Saul for now. I don't know about you, Chris. How are you feeling? I, I like to think we did a good job, but uh uh, and this guy apparently is pretty picky if he's going to start, you know, building contraptions and stuff like that to uh, 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 manipulate the way that we do our little show here. I, I just, I don't know what to make of it. I guess we have to hit this final moment of the show, Chris. The big moment perhaps some people are waiting for. Um, is Mark and Mindy a better spinoff than Better Call Saul? <sighs> it's not better in terms of overall quality, but it may be uh, closer to my heart because of the nostalgia of having grown up with it, the uh, constant fun of Robin Williams' silliness. Um, I have to say that, you know, if if I could only take one show to a desert island where I was going to be stranded forever, uh, I really might take Mork and Mindy over Better Call Saul. But that's not the question of what would I take to a desert island. The question is what's better, right? So in that case, I'll, I'll give it to Better Call Saul. There's a lot of cultural capital tied up in almost any show from this period of my life that I watched when I was a kid and that just got in, ingrained, as I said. It does it does loom large in my mind. Yes. Um, but I don't think there's anything that puts it ahead of Better Call Saul in terms of what's close to my heart. But I've already mentioned to you that if we end up on the same desert island, we can trade 
Blu-rays. Oh, good idea. So we could each take one of these shows. So yeah, I hope that's good enough. And I guess that's a season of Better Call Saul, and that's a season of Saul Searching. Maybe our stalker will uh, think that we did a good enough job uh, with today's episode, and he'll be like, uh, fly, be free. There went the lights. I, I think we were fine until you did that fly, be free shit, Chris. This is just a coincidence. Did you pay your bill? Of course I paid my bill. Check your phone. I don't have any signal. It must be jammed or something. Oh, my God. Chris, this is what he said he would do. Oh, my God. First the power, then the phones. Well, it, uh, if he comes in here, then at least we'll have a document of everything that happens because you're still recording. So just get ready to... The laptop only has like 2% of battery life left. Oh, jeez. What was that? He's behind you. Chris, let's get back to back. Use your mic as a weapon. Hey! 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 Get up! Get him! Take that, you! My ankle! <laughs>